0: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صلِّ وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده فاتح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا ولا we left off yesterday, or last time rather, sorry, we left off last time talking about how in the initial phase of the Battle of Uhud, that the Muslims were able, even though they were outnumbered, to defeat in the beginning the Quraysh. And the sign of this is that the flag of the Quraysh was held by at least 10 people. Every time someone would hold the flag, it would fall. And for them, that is a major deal. If the flag falls, then they don't know where and how to fight because then there's no direction. Everyone, all these people at the time, they pretty much look the same. So they could easily be confused. So the flag falling in battle and not remaining you know, erect, that's a problem. And the fact that it kept falling, it kept falling, it kept falling, person after person, it was very demoralizing to the Quraysh. So actually, the Quraysh began to retreat. This is where we left off. Uh, We also mentioned, when we began to talk about the Battle of Uhud, how there was a little mountain, a little hill, upon which the Prophet ﷺ put some archers under uh, the leadership of Abdullah ibn Jubayr and uh, Afwan, Abdullah ibn Jabir, radiallahu anhu, and he gave explicit instructions that they were not to move from their position regardless of what happened in battle. If the Muslims won, they were not supposed to move. If the Muslims lost, they were also not supposed to move. And actually, in the early phase of the Battle of Uhud, the archers repelled three attacks by Khalid ibn Walid's cavalry. So they actually the Quraysh tried to attack the Muslim flank, and they were repelled because of these archers. So this was a strategic position, and these were explicit orders in a time of war. You know, we like to use I like to use the modern uh, some of the modern phraseology helps us understand the significance of what these things are. Now that the Quraysh started to retreat, the Muslims they started when now when the Quraysh retreat they just drop everything that's in their hands so they can run away. So they're dropping weapons, they're dropping shield, they're dropping provisions, they might leave horses. You know, this is what you call the spoils of war. Uh, and, and this is a big part at this time, not just in Arabia, but in the world, this is a big part of warfare, this is a big outcome, is that there are spoils of war. So the archers saw the Muslims starting to gather the spoils of war. And then some of them began to say, okay, you know, the battle's over, we won, let's, let's go and partake in the spoils of war. You know, a little bit of the dunya came in. And Abdullah ibn Jabir said, no, the Prophet wasallam gave us explicit orders uh, not to do that. So 40 of the 50 archers left their position, descended on the battlefield for dunya, right? They, they descended on the battlefield so that they could collect what they thought they, were, you know, they would miss out. But Abdullah bin Jabir عنه, and about nine others, they maintained and they held their position. Khalid ibn Walid, عنه, you know, he, he's, he's, he becomes Muslim, but this time he's not, was uh, you know one of the greatest generals. He's actually listed as one of the greatest generals of history. And he did not relent. So even though the Quraysh was retreating, he saw the opportunity. The opportunities that the position is free, so he attacked. Abdullah bin Jabir, the other sahaba, maintained their position. They all died. The re- remaining ten archers—they all died. Khalid ibn Walid was able to attack the Muslim army from the rear. So the Muslim army, essentially, a sandwich. There's the retreating Quraysh in front of them. They're collecting their things, uh, and you know they're not—they're they're not like fast-speed uh, vehicles. They're—they're they're running on foot, you know, on cavalry things like that. So they can sort of catch up, and then Khalid ibn Walid with the cavalry now is behind them. So this is where the battle starts to turn. This is the story of Uhud. The Prophet ﷺ was behind all of this, observing the battle, uh, commanding the battle. He was in a fixed position, behind all of this. Between the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslim army was now Khalid ibn Walid and these these horses, the cavalry. The Prophet ﷺ was with only nine other companions. So, rather than run or hide uh, or retreat, the Prophet Did the exact opposite of all of that, and he yelled as loud as he as he could. Yeah, I bad Allah. You know, oh, you know, oh, uh, you know, people of Allah subhanahu wa taala. Anything yelling to distract Khalid ibn Walid. Now, if you're Khalid ibn Walid and you have this advantage, what's the bigger prize? The Muslim army or the Prophet sallallahu alaihi That's only guarded by nine people the prophet so the prophet took the deflection away brought harm to himself to save his his army so now khalid ibn walid again he's you know uh, a man of strategy he turns and races towards the prophet sallam who's only protected or only has nine of his companions with him at this point it was a little bit of confusion well not a little bit there was a lot of confusion on the battlefield some of the muslims they gave up, they felt that this is it, we're going to lose. So some of them actually retreated and went all the way to Medina. Some of them retreated the wrong way and ended up in the army of Quraysh and then got confused, who's who, so that when the armies begin fighting again, Muslims were fighting Muslims by mistake. Because again, maybe you know they're not known, they're all dressed the same, they all look the same, uh, they're all the same people essentially uh, from that region. So there was a lot of confusion that came. And to add to the confusion, as I mentioned in the Battle of Badr, all the time the Quraysh are always giving out these miscommunicates that the Prophet is dead, the Prophet has perished, the Prophet was killed, etc. So this adds to it. So a lot of the Muslims, you know, they're, they're starting to give way. It's one thing to lose the flag, but to lose the Prophet ﷺ, that's a whole other thing. And then there are those sahaba, who we'll come to talk about in a little bit, who nothing phases them. And they see and they realize that the Prophet ﷺ is essentially defenseless and will perish and they, and they also march to beat Khalid ibn Walid to go and protect the Prophet ﷺ. So now the dynamic of the battlefield has changed. Now it's about protecting the Prophet ﷺ, dealing with all of this other stuff later. But this was not an easy, we say it, but this was not an easy task. You have, you have people fleeing, you have uh, the Muslims surrounded. You have the Prophet being attacked. You have people saying he's, he fell in battle, he's dead. You have people that went back to Medina. You have people that joined the Qurai. So it's all this confusion. So it's at this moment where you have to, you know, you have to be a person of absolute clarity to be able to bring people back and focus them. Uh, like Anas ibn al-Nadr, Radiallahu Anhu, one of the famous Sahaba. Who helped the fleeing? He would stop the fleeing Muslims. And he'd say, where are you going? And they're like, "Oh, the Prophet SAW is dead. We heard he's dead." He's like, "Okay, maybe the Prophet SAW is dead, but fight for your religion. Allah Hayyun Allah is alive and does not die. You stand firm. Where, where are you going? This is not, you know, our connection to all of this is not just the Prophet SAW. Meaning that it's okay if he 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 will die one day. He will pass on one day. We have to have something you know else that, or in addition that we're fighting for." He said this as they were fleeing and to demonstrate it, he ran you know, into the enemy lines and he fought and he fought and he fought until he was killed. When he died, his body was so badly wounded, he had over 80 wounds. 80 wounds. And when we're talking about these wounds, you know, it's it's try to comprehend what 80. I was saying the other day, if you get a paper cut, you know, like that's it. It's the end of your day. You need Neosporin, you need a Band-Aid, you know, you have to Oh, I'm going to wipe over it when I make wudu. And you know, you get, it's all of this, these uh, uh, workarounds. He's 80 times. This man has been hit by a sword or a dagger or a spear or something. 80 times. His body was so badly wounded that only his sister could identify his body after the battlefield. Meaning that they couldn't tell who this was from all of the scars, all of the blood, all of the, uh, you know, the things that one would expect in that type of situation. Thabit. Ibn al-Dahdah who spoke to the Ansar and he said if the Prophet is dead Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is alive and doesn't die and this is a famous statement because this is what is sort of memorialized by Sayyidina Abu Bakr anhu during the passing of the Prophet sallallahu sallam, that, uh, the Prophet sallallahu sallam, has passed but Allah is alive and does not die meaning that we are not worshipping the Prophet sallallahu he's here to guide us we are worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he, he lives or he falls in battle or whatever, that's not what makes it or breaks it. We are now part of faith and this is our community and we have to defend it. So it was stances like these that helped to turn the Muslims back, not to totally give up. And then it was also the people that went beyond all of that to march also into harm's way to the protection of the Prophet wasallam. So the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he's he's still yelling he's trying to bring all of the Quraysh towards him so that his people can regroup. He would say halumma ilayya ana rasulullah. You know, come to me, I am the messenger of Allah. You're the opposite of what you would do. You wouldn't you wouldn't do that. He's basically I'm here, you're putting a target on himself sallallahu alaihi wasallam. 7 of the 9 people that were protecting the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam died as the Quraysh came to attack. So now imagine it's Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and he's not like Meek. The Prophet Saws was a strong person. You know, him and two others. That's it. As the other Muslims are trying to come to his aid. So he said to the other ones that were with him, "Who will repel the enemy and be my companion in the paradise?" In paradise? Because that if you if you take a step out, you're going to die. There's no you know, there's no Chuck Norris, Van Dam, nothing. You know, there's no Arnold move. You're gonna you're gonna die, right? There's an army and one person. You have to be realistic. So uh, they, they stepped forward. The only people that were left with him were Talha ibn Ubaidullah anhu, and Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas. Anhu. The Prophet himself was injured because the strikes, you know, they're, 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 the Prophet was essentially against the mountain. So he's, his back is to the mountain, they're attacking him. The the Talha and Sa'ad are trying to protect him, the swords are coming, the spears are coming. The Prophet was injured physically and he broke his right lower molar, was injured, you know, through his cheek, sallallahu alayhi wa And his face was bloody, sallallahu alayhi wa And he started dripping blood. You know, he was struck. Heavy, heavy strikes. His face, his body. One of the injuries that he had, it. He, fe- he said that he felt it for months to come after that. That's how hard it was. That's how difficult it was. Now, imagine if you were there, what your attitude would be like. If, if you were protecting the Prophet ﷺ, if people were, were trying to kill him for no, you know, no other reason than he's just, you know, with the simple message of la ilaha illallah muhammad rasulullah. That's all he was trying to do. You would be pretty upset. Imagine if you saw the Prophet not be injured. How you would act, how you would react. I remember one time one of our teachers uh, in the Azhar mosque after one of his classes or after prayer or something like that. A man came up to him who wasn't, you know, maybe he had some mental issues, but he came up to him and he hit the sheikh so hard that he started bleeding from his eye. And all of the students that were there when they saw that, they—they, they, I mean, they beat that man to a pulp. That was their, and this is just their teacher, okay? Imagine if this was the Prophet ﷺ. But the Prophet ﷺ, what was he saying? Allahumma qfir liqaumi fi innahum la Allah, please forgive my people. They do not know who is he talking about. He's talking about the Quraysh. He's talking about the people that are hitting him. He refers to them as his people. He refers to them as his community. And he asks Allah to forgive them because he said in the other hadith about this scenario, he said that you know, Allah's wrath will descend on a people who have caused the blood of the Prophet to shed. It's one thing not to believe, but to physically harm the Prophet وسلم, is the, the most grotesque form of attack. So he was making du'a for them, not against them. Right? This is why we follow him. And by the way, in that story, the next day, the sheikh uh, admonished all of the students and said, uh, and made all the students feel bad for what they did. He said, "This is not the way of the prophets." I mean, it turned out that this man, you know, had some mental issues, and the sheikh forgave him and, you know, and all of the students. I mean, alhamdulillah, I wasn't there. I heard about it, but all the students felt bad because that's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to hit people that hit us, especially in those circumstances. So this was the, you know, a very difficult moment for the Prophet. ﷺ. He would encourage Saad to fight, and you know the Arabs they have a, a saying that, Oh, may my mother be a ransom, may my, my may my father be a ransom. But when he spoke to Sa'ad, he said, May my mother and father be a ransom. And the Prophet ﷺ never used that phraseology. He would either say his, he would only say his mother. But in this instance, this was the Prophet's way ﷺ of saying, you know, I really need you, Sa'd. This is it. I mean this is literally life or death. <clears throat> Talha was fighting so hard that he lost his fingers, uh, and his and his hand was uh, numb and injured. You know, for the rest of his life, radiallahu anhu. And after this battle, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi he would say, "If you want to see a martyr walking on earth, look at Talha for his bravery." And Abu Bakr, later when he would talk about the battle of Uhud, he said, that day belongs entirely to Talha. So this is the bravery. This is what the companions had to go through. Uh, when we talk about the companions, and we talk about the sunnah, and we talk about the salaf, you know, people talk about the salaf. We want to follow the salaf. Right, this is what the salaf did. The salaf weren't you know, measuring their size of their thobe and their size of their beard, and the diameter of their miswak, and that's all the salaf were doing. Salafah, the Salaf were, you know, they were literally losing limbs and digits for us to be able to pray. That's it. That's all they were trying to do. Because this was, attack. this was an attack, you know, Uhud is right outside of Medina. For people that have visited, it's very nearby. It's not like Badr. Uhud is very nearby. Alhamdulillah, finally the companions came to the aid of the Prophet Wasallam Talha and Saad and were able to repel and push back Khalid and the other Quraysh. The battle, this part of the battle of Uhud is full of stories of Sahaba that would take arrows in the back for the Prophet. You know, a Sahaba would see an arrow, an archer aiming, and he would turn his back to take the arrow for the Prophet wasallam, And continue fighting. And as somebody would just yank it out and they would, you know, continue fighting. There were those that were injured with tens and tens and tens of wounds. The person that died with 70 wounds, 80 wounds, 90 wounds, too many to enumerate. A very bloody, a very uh, high cost uh, injured, injury of battle. Even women, the women of Medina, some of the women even participated in the battle of Uhud. Qatada radiallahu anhu, the famous sahaba, lost his eye. And the Prophet hasn't put it back in its socket. And Qatada said, This eye that, was, that the Prophet hasn't put back was the better of my two eyes for the rest of my life. It was one of the Prophet's miracles, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. qatada, we say, you know, the eye of qatada. After defending against these personal attacks, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, the, the Muslims now have a little bit of a, a grip, a firm ground. He uh, marches forward to attack the entire Quraysh enemy. He gives the flag to Ali to indicate to his army that they're still in it. You know that there's still more, you know, battle to be had. Around 30 of the companions see and hear this, and they start to gather around the Prophet ﷺ. But he, he tells them to be quiet because he didn't want you know, any more distraction. Now his diversion tactic worked. Now he wants to attack. But you know because of the love they had for the Prophet ﷺ, they saw him, they got so excited, they rallied around him. So he slowly retreats with this group to the Muslim encampment. Not retreat from the battlefield, but retreats to the Muslim encampment so that they could regroup. The Quraysh, they tried to climb the mountain and attack from the mountaintop. The Prophet ﷺ was able to repel this attack with arrows. Saad ibn Abul Waqqas, the Prophet gave him three arrows. He said, "You know, shoot this," and he shot it, and he would hit somebody. He said, "Shoot with this." He, he, he shot it, and he hit somebody. "Shoot with this." He, so he's like, "Well, this is like mubarak." You know? So he he collected those arrows in the quiver and he kept those like for barakah for like the rest of his life, and even his children, you know, passed it on. And I say this other than it's a cool part of the story is that this, these are the, this is the reason why we seek the barakah of the artifacts of the Prophet you know That's why museums around the world and homes around the world have hairs of the Prophet pieces of the cloth of the Prophet pieces of the staff of the Prophet the sandals of the Prophet anything related to Sayyidina Muhammad the Muslims were obsessed with uh, because of the, the meaning that is associated with that. So that like at last attempt by the Quraysh that didn't work alhamdulillah they were repelled The Quraysh start to retreat again full retreat so the Quraysh are with the Quraysh the Muslims are with the Muslims and Abu Sufyan you know he he doesn't want to give up so easily because he had like there's an advantage there he could have completely won he could have completely won this battle so he starts trash talking what we would call trash talk he starts yelling you know, where is your Muhammad? Where is, you know, he starts like trash talking. So the Prophet ﷺ doesn't respond. But Omar, you know, he can't let the, the opportunity go. So Omar gets into the game. He starts yelling back at Abu Sufyan. And then um, because the Prophet ﷺ is not talking, Abu Sufyan is trying to insinuate that he's dead. And then Omar is next to the, to the Prophet ﷺ. So he says, no, he hears you. He hears everything that you're saying. You know, so they're going back. They're bantering back and forth, back and forth. So Abu Sufyan says, our appointment is next year in the, bad, in the next year at Badr. So the Prophet tells Umar to agree. So Umar says, okay, are we, we will meet you next year at Badr. So now this is, you know, a uh, scheduled battle, right? Now we have a scheduled battle because the armies need time to uh, repair themselves. The, the sick and the injured need to be healed. Uh, they need to get more resources. They need to make more swords. It's, you know, it's, we don't have, uh, you know, there's no Home Depot for battle supplies in Arabia. So it takes time for them to prepare for this. The Prophet ﷺ is not 100% comfortable with the retreat. So he sends Ali, Sayyidina Ali ﷺ to see what they're doing. He said, are they riding their camels or their horses? If they're riding their camels, that means they're heading back for Mecca. If they're riding their horses, that means they're going to head towards Medina. Because the, the, the horse is the swifter animal for attack and the camel, that's you know, what the long, long-term transportation. So Sayyidina Ali comes back, he says, no, they're riding their, their uh, camels. So he says, okay, so they're heading back for Mecca. Uh, so the Prophet Wasallam decides, okay, now it's time to go back to Medina. Some of the, uh, the dead, the people that we lost in the battle of Uhud. Uh, Seventy of the Muslims died. 65 from the Ansar and the breakdown is 41 from the Khazraj and 24 from the Aus. Four Muhajirun and one Jew, muhayraq who we talked about last week. He is counted as amongst the dead, obviously, because he died in the battle of Uhud. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, muhayraq Khayrul Yehud, is the best of the Jews. And the Quraysh lost 37. So this is why we consider it not like a complete defeat, but it, it, it was not the best the best of battles. And n- next week we'll talk about the lessons and, and all of that stuff. We just want to get through some of the, the details first. The Prophet sent Zayd ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu to look for Sa'd ibn Rabia and to give him salams, etc. And he found that he had over 70 strikes. And he was wounded 70 times, but he was still alive. And then he said that he could smell... He, when, when Sa'd found him, he said... Uh, uh, when zayd found sad sad told zayd i could smell paradise and then he died and there are many of these you know these uh stories uh and many of our not my direct teachers but many of the teachers that we know of that have passed in the previous generation when they came to pass many of these stories they would smell paradise they would hear hear things that were you know like singing or beautiful sounds and you know there's no music and you know that's like what will to come so this is something that happens uh, to the believer, that when their time comes, they start getting these these glad, these glad tidings. There's also the story of Amr ibn Thabit, anhu, who became Muslim and fought and died in Uhud without praying one rakah in Islam. Uh, and that's interesting. It's interesting because as, as Muslims now, oftentimes we quantify our Islam rather than qualify it. So we're thinking about what we're doing how much how many things are we doing in our quote unquote dean life you know this is somebody that didn't he not only did he not pray he probably didn 't even know how to pray he had just become Muslim and joined this you know battle effort this war effort and died and he's counted as a companion he's counted as a shaheed so we shouldn 't take anybody uh, for granted we don 't know the story of people and of course the story of Mukhayraq we spoke about last time the um, the Medinese Jew who fought and died defending Medina. There was another man named Qazman. He fought for bravery. Uh, he fought bravely, rather. But when he was asked about his fighting, he said that he fought for his people, not for Islam. And he died. Uh, and the Prophet you know, did not give a glad tidings about his end because his, the niyyah of his, fa- of his fighting was different from why they were fighting. The Prophet made sure that the dead were buried. Sometimes two or three were buried in a grave. Uh, They didn't have enough clothes to shroud the bodies. Well, not you don't shroud the martyr, but to cover the bodies at least. I mean, it was a very bare situation in Uhud. And of course, the Prophet ﷺ was most sad when he saw the body of Hamza, Sayyidina Hamza radiallahu anhu. And then the Prophet prayed janezah over them, and then he returns to Medina. He enters Medina on Saturday, the 7th of Shawwal, in the third year of the hijrah. As the Muslims enter into Medina, how were they received? You know, a lot of the, the women that were that did not participate, uh, there were women that lost their sons, their fathers, their husbands, but all they wanted to know if the Prophet was okay. Uh, that's the kind of love and affection that they had. Another one, uh, Hima bin Jahsh, she lost her brother She was told, you know, you lost your brother, her maternal uncle Hamza, and then her husband. But when it came to her, each time somebody was mentioned of her relatives that died, she made dua, you know, Alhamdulillah, Astaghfirullah, things like that. But when she she was told that her husband died, she broke down crying. And the Prophet the husband of a woman causes her to cry. So there's a special relationship, there should be a special relationship between husband and wife that sometimes surpasses, and many times, the affection or the relationship that you have with your siblings or your parents, things like that. We went over the death toll. So that's Saturday, the 7th of Shawwal, the 3rd of the Hijrah, the 3rd year of the Hijrah. The next day, Sunday, the 8th of Shawwal, the Prophet ﷺ, he, he doesn't feel that that was enough. So he calls everyone back to battle. He said, only the people that fought in Uhud come out with me. The very next day, they rode out, to an area called Hamra al Asad, which is uh, a distance away from Medina. There, the Prophet met Ma'bad ibn Abi Ma'bad al Khuza'i, who we met, met earlier during the Hijrah. He had now, he has come, he's converted, he's become Muslim. So, we'll come back to him in a second why that's important. The Prophet s.a. was concerned that the same feeling he has, Abu Sufyan is gonna have. He's gonna kind of regret, not regret, but feel like, okay, you know what, I'm gonna go back. And they start fighting the Quraysh army, Abu Sufyan and other people. Abu Sufyan wants to go back and wants to, to fight. The other people are like, Yeah, it's over. Let's go back and you know, mend the wounds and, and you know, get back to business. And we have an appointment next year with Bedr, all of that. So they start quibbling uh, back and forth, back and forth. They actually turn back and head towards Medina. So, had the Prophet says, I'm not gone out, they would have been, you know, there could have been a surprise attack against Medina. Abu Sufyan arrives around this area called Al-Rawha which is closer to Medina uh, and then it's there that he meets Ma'bad Abu Sufyan does not know that Ma'bad is Muslim so Abu Sufyan asks Ma'bad what's going on you know we were just in this battle with Muhammad of Medina you know of course we say Sayyidina Muhammad at that time Abu Sufyan is not Muslim so Maba is like, oh man, they have prepared an army the likes of which I have never seen before. He's like, really? So you know, Maba, he keeps talking up the Prophet ﷺ's you know, defense posture to the point that Abu Sufyan actually gives up and decides to retreat to Mecca. But the Prophet ﷺ stayed there from the 9th of Shawwal to the 11th of Shawwal just to make sure that there's going to be no turning around. And then he returns to Medina and that concludes the battle of Uhud. Uh, much to consider, especially the situation of the archers and how could the companions do that? How, the, you know, how could they not follow his orders? Why did the Muslims lose? Or not lose, but why did this calamity happen? We could talk about that next time, inshallah, as we segue into uh, the rest of the third year of the hijrah. Wallahu ta'ala, a'ala Alam. <coughs> Any questions? Are there uh, any specific stories about the yes, yeah, so actually when they when they saw some of the um, Muslims retreating from uh, from Uhud, they left Medina to go to go fight. Uh, some of them would prepare weapons, some of them would heal the sick, some of them would give water. I mean the different, you know, different Roles, But some of them actually did actually fight, you know, fight, fight in battle. But no specific one story. Uh, but they participated. You know, tell that to the people that want to put the Muslims, women in another part of the mosque, right? Yeah. So Where did the self actually originate? Where did what originate? the salaf where did it originate from because we have known this in at this time some people talking that well what is the, what is the salaf first of all that's the question the there are three definitions to the salaf some say that it is the first three generations some say it is the first three centuries and then some say it is the first five centuries. And they mark the death of Imam al-Bayhaqi and Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali and the year 505 of the Hijrah as the end of the period of the Salaf. Because in the first 500 years of Islam, this is when all of the major sciences of Islam were codified. Fiqh, Hadith, etc. So the Salaf is what we, is we refer to a time period. It's the early time period, the people that were closest to the Prophet Wasallam. that's it. And we are the khalaf, we are the people that come after. That's all it means, it doesn't mean anything else. But these people that I made reference to, they think that the reason our state is so bad is that we have left the way of the salaf, so they want to go back in time, and they want to live like the salaf. But you can't do that, you can only live the time that you're in now. So what we want is we want to follow the methodology of the salaf. We don't want to follow the way that they lived, but we want to follow their methodology. That's why we suck, essentially, in a sentence. It's plain and simple. But they don't understand that because following the methodology of the salaf is too complicated because you have to learn and you have to study and you have to think. But wearing a short thobe and having a big miswek is easy. So if you do that, you feel good about yourself, so you think that you're a good Muslim. But Islam is not with feelings. Islam is with knowledge. You have to know what you're doing and follow it. And that's why I always say there's a difference between deen and tadayun. There's a difference between the study of religion and the practice of religion. We all have to be practicing our Islam. But no matter how much we practice, that doesn't make us scholars of religion. To be a scholar of religion, you have to study. When you study, then you learn the methodology, then you apply it the best you can, inshaAllah. And then that's how you follow the salaf, i.e. the methodology of the salaf. Very, very simple. Yes. It's hard to put a start date exactly on when the when the Salafi, you know, movement or thing, starts. But all of this in our uh, modern area, all of this really comes from around the time of Muhammad Abdul Wahab, which was in the late 1700s in which him and his people the Ikhwan, not the Ikhwan now, but the, the, his people were called the Ikhwan they had this idea that there was too much bid'ah in the Arabian Peninsula, there was too much bid'ah in Mecca and Medina and they wanted to you know, do away with the bid'ah and go back to like a pure Islam like the Salaf. So that's sort of the beginning of this type of way of thinking but the problem with answering this question is that there are so many different kinds of Salafi or Salafism that you can't, it's not one thing. So we'd have to be, it's, it's much more complicated to answer. It's not one thing that you can, oh, it starts here and this is who they follow. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, but you can think about it the last basically 250 years is the rise of this, this way of thinking. And there are some Salafi groups that are so frightened by the other Salafi groups, they call them people of Bidah. I mean, it's really funny. It's like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Right? Al-Qaeda said ISIS is too extreme. Is ISIS, um, has Salafism? These extreme groups come from that way of thinking, but not, not directly. It takes a couple of steps. So you can be a Salafi, Your whole life and you know be peaceful and easygoing and things like that but some of the Salafi people they take this the hard line yeah but not not necessarily not necessarily so you have to be it's it requires much more discussion than just you know because I say these things and then people start cursing me on on, online and you know they say I'm against Islam and Muslims and so I give that warning yeah Oh, I think we said that last week. Let me see if I can pull that out uh, I gotta get back to you on that I think I don't think I have it. Well, their, their entire army was 200 cavalry. So the question is, how many of those were, was Khaled's unit? I have, to, so that, I have to get back to you. I don't have that. Good question. That actually would explain a lot of the story. Because well, I mean, it's like Khaled and like one guy on a horse, then it's sort of... 40 left, there was only 10 left, yeah. So they were overcome. I mean, it was, a lot, it was a lot, but I don't know if it was all 200 of the I think it was all 200 of the cavalry. Khalid's unit was the cavalry. Okay. yeah. So I think it was 200. Okay. Yeah. Over What period of time did the battle take place? The what? Like, what period of time did the... Uhud? Yeah. Uh, a couple hours or many hours? Uh, one day. Insane. Yeah, because this happened on Friday. On Friday... Uh, the 6th of Shawwal. After Jummah, the Prophet saw went out. All of this happened between Jummah and the end of the day. And then the next day, uh, the 7th, the Saturday, they went to Medina. And then Sunday, the 8th, they went They went out. So Yeah, all of this is in one day. Yeah. Waalaikumsalam. Hamra al there any fighting that happened? Or was it just... No, it was like a... It's considered part of Ahud. Most of the Maghazi literature considers it part of Ahud. But there's no fighting. Because Mabad, he said, oh, the army's too big. You got to go back. So they consider it part of Ahud. Of yeah. I think Talha's promised Jannah. I don't know about Sa'ad. But there are other Sahaba promised Jannah other than the 10 promised Jannah. So that's another thing. When you count all of the people that the Prophet as I'm said are the people of Jannah, they're more than just the 10. Khalid, I think it was after Hudaybiyah. Later. Maybe like year 7. Right? I'm, we'll get to that. I'm not, I don't have the exact year now. But later. Anybody else? Yes. appreciate uh, their the sincerity i just if possible I guess you can make a comment on what side they were on at the, at the time of <clears throat> well that's why we call it a fitna it was a you know a great a great fitna because the sahaba like talha and Sa'ad and and then later Sayyidah aisha gets involved and of course imam ali and uh, muawiya it, it's you know the people that we're reading about now to see them at this against each other it's a great, a great civil, you know, strife type of situation. Um, but the, the the situation though is not as simple as as we think. Um, essentially, it boils down to the reaction to the death or to the assassination of Sayyidina Uthman. So Sayyidina Uthman is assassinated, radiallahu anhu. And Muawiyah is from the same clan or people of as Sayyidina Othman. But because Sayyidina Omar is killed and then Sayyidina Othman is killed, when Imam Ali becomes the Khalifa, uh, you know, this two of the heads of state were killed back to back. So he saw this, his interpretation of the situation is that this is like what we would say a national security crisis. Muawiyah is is more concerned with solving the issue of who killed Uthman Sayyidina Ali is not, did not say that that's not important he just said that the, there's a greater concern because the people that killed Omar, Uthman, Ali eventually anhum, uh, the, their names were not Arabs, they were not people that were from that area, there was like another like fifth column or some weird something was happening, they were foreigners essentially foreign agents you can say and that's really what the conflict is about. Muawiyah ref- delays his bayah to Imam Ali. So Imam Ali uh, as a sign of like protest of him trying to solve this national problem. He's saying, why aren't you redressing the wrong of, of Uthman? So he delays the bayah. Now you can't do that. You can't be the governor and I mean in, in that system and not give your allegiance to the head of state. So then Sayyidina Ali gets the army and he goes to dialogue actually with Muawiyah. But there were other Sahaba that were in Damascus by that time anyway. So I think that that's just sort of, you know, maybe wrong place, wrong time, maybe kind of situation. Uh, And when the two armies meet, there actually isn't any fighting. They're trying to dialogue with each other. And then there are people that infiltrate both camps and start killing people such that both armies think a battle has started and the other side has attacked so they start fighting each other so that's actually how they end up fighting it's sort of by coercion so the way that the ulama the later ulama now the way like we look at we look back and we talk about that is that we say you know all of the sahaba had their own ijtihad whose ijtihad was right Sayyidina ali's ijtihad was right not Sayyidina muawiyah's but Sidna Ma'wiyah had an Ijtihad nonetheless. And then the Sahabas, therefore, that, that were on those different sides, they also saw the different Ijtihad. Some of the Sahaba didn't participate at all. I can't remember. It might have even been sad, I can't remember. But one of them, an elderly Sahih, he just stayed in Mecca. He said, I don't want anything to do with this. This is a fitna. I don't want to get involved. So, you know, you're right. It's, it's a very difficult situation. Well, there are different levels of not following instructions. <laughs> so, I think the fact that they lost was instruction enough. You know, the, the, I think the the failure is the greatest lesson in this. That it's very obvious that they messed up. Uh, and then, oftentimes, revelation comes to address. You know, these uh, like later, like the, the the few Sahaba that don't go to fight. The Quran talks about the ones that that didn't fight, and then the Prophet when he came back, he wouldn't even speak to them. So one of them, he tied himself to the post in the mosque, and he's like, I'm not going to be untied until like, the Prophet like, forgives me, and then like, a huge amount of time passes, and then a verse is revealed, and then he's like forgiven. So the Prophet you know, was a softie when it came to that, so he wants to forgive, but also you can't, you can't not follow orders in battle and then make us lose. I mean, that's just not going to work. But he doesn't want to take action... You know, he doesn't like discipline, he doesn't like whip them or, you know, only if, only if somebody uh, killed an innocent soul unjustly. That's the only time the Prophet SAW would take some kind of, you know, capital punishment. All these other things, the Prophet says, I'm not talking to you is enough. Yeah, I mean, really bad. Can you imagine being a mount, seeing him every day and he doesn't talk to you? I mean that's the worst thing. You remember when you were a kid and your parents wouldn't talk to you because like you broke something. You feel like I mean that's I mean I felt really bad. I would feel really bad. I think the kids today they lost that. They don't care. They're like Alhamdulillah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. Yes, yes. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. But I mean they lost. They they are the cause of the loss of the battle. It was disobedience. And it was dunya. It was disobedience for, for, for like the wrong, the worst thing. It's just because they thought that they're gonna the spoils were gonna go and they're not gonna get anything. But the the discipline is, you know, the silence, the the revelation, the fact that they have to go back to Medina and live with everyone, everyone knowing that they did this. Um the next day on Sunday, many of the companions of Medina that didn't fight, wanted to fight with the Prophet I mean, He said, no, only the people that fought. So I mean, that, that right there, that exclusion, that becomes a form of discipline. Like you're not good enough to fight in the army. So those ways are more effective, you know, the, the Prophet's tarbiyah way. Yeah, him not talking, that's, that's, that's the worst that can happen. There's a, fa- there's a story of this famous uh, Turkish saint who wanted to. I think he wanted to be relieved from the army, from the Ottoman army. And he had a dream of the Prophet, and like he wanted to kiss the Prophet's hand or something in his dream, and the Prophet wouldn't let him. And he's like, How could you kiss my hand if you won't serve in my army? Or he was a soldier that had this, he wanted to leave the army and then he had a dream of the Prophet and ever since that dream, he's like total dervish in the mosque, you know, praying all the time, you know, crying, all because, of the, because of that one dream. And that, that's just a dream, you know, because he wanted to be relieved of his you know, military service to the empire. So the Prophet "I'm not speaking to you, Allah not speaking to you, you know, the worst punishment that the people of the hellfire have is that Allah will not talk to them. In the Qur'an, if you look at the Qur'an and the verses of the punishment, is that Allah is not going to talk to you or answer their du'a. That's the worst. So, you know, that's all he had to do. I don't know that I don't know. I don't know. But they tried to wipe his face, sallallahu But it was too bloody. He had to. They had to get water to to, to clean it. What general um, you know, messages that you think we can learn from uh, from this or, yeah. yeah it's it's really a lesson of obedience um <clears throat> now we don't have this type of we don't all have the you know very few of us serve in the armed forces but the type of obedience to uh to the people that teach you and guide you in islam it, uh, they it is a part of the obedience that the companions had to the Prophet Sawsalum, and that's very important, and that's completely antithetical to the to our the dominant culture. The dominant culture is, you know, question uh, authority. Uh, nobody's right if everyone's wrong. You know, like the song says. You know, the protest. Hashtag this. Hashtag that. Uh, expose, expose. Uh, but you're not going to get anywhere with Allah if, if, if you want to get somewhere with Allah and you have somebody that's helping you you're not going to get to Allah that way the way you get to Allah is you listen and you obey So and that's hard it's hard because the nafs is very strong and the human intellect is so creative you can say and justify anything to yourself it's, it's unbelievable what our minds can do to our own selves we can be our own worst enemy so when you meet a sheikh and the sheikh says, do this and don't do this, and, you know, and you're like this uh, 21st century uh, you know, westerner, like, what are you talking about? You know, I'll do what I want. It doesn't work. And, I, and I've seen this. I mean, I don't want to mention names, but I mean, there are people that if I mentioned your na- their names that are very well known, and I, t- I told you some background stories, you would be shocked. And that all happens from not wanting to sit down and listen. And that's the hardest thing. The hardest thing is to sit down and listen. And I'm not saying it, it's not like a military type of thing, and it's not esoteric, but, but to train your nafs to, to improve yourself, you've got to tame it. And, and that sometimes takes, some, it takes discipline. And you're not going to get anywhere anywhere in life, not your religious life or your secular life, without discipline. And, and that's, that's tough. That's really the lesson. They saw, an oppor- they, they saw what they thought was an opportunity that they were going to lose out on forgetting that the spoils of war are regulated by the prophets he's going to distribute them anyway no one's going to take something he's not going to know about it so it was, it was dumb for them to do that but these are the greatest generation, we call them the greatest generation if they were here now we would kiss their feet those forty archers, you know, without, without question so the, the lesson is that it's hard, it can come to anyone the dunya can come to you, you know, a little bit of a glimmer, a little bit of flash of gold and you, know, you just you, you, you prounce on it and you lose your bearings and that's, you know, think of the battle of Uhud. Think about what that can do to you. You leave your own flank opened. If you leave your own flank open, you know, shaitan can get in there, whispers to you, You start your mind starts justifying things to yourself, and, you know, it's a slippery slope after that. So for me, I, I think that's one of the biggest, the biggest lessons. The other lesson, or the other meta lesson, is really the lesson of appreciating the, the, the level of faith that the companions had to do what they did, to, to protect the Prophet in that way, you know, knowing 100% certainty that they're going to die, they're going to perish uh, in the most you know, painful way, but knowing that there's a bigger cause, there's a bigger reason to live for. A lot of times, we only occupy our little space, and we forget that there's more to the world than just our little, our little us, our, the little me, there's, there's the other. There are other things, there are other communities. So, again, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as the Battle of Ahur, but those are lessons that we can, you know, things that themes that we can think about. Uh, about the importance of sacrifice, about the importance of, it's okay to have a little discomfort to help other people. <coughs> those kind of things, I think. You know. Okay. Mean the wars that we're talking about? All of the wars. okay. How many you know start from women? Well Hind was pretty, you know, instrumental in, in getting Abu Sufyan to go out to Ohad. And, and she mutilates Hamza's body, she eats from his uh, from yeah. his liver. But she didn't start. No. that's true. And so that was her sort of hysteria. to say least. <laughs> uh, well, she's she's the one that that commissioned Wahshay to kill Ham. I mean she's a, she's a little different. Maybe other women you could say that about, but she was she was definitely a, you know, an enemy of the state. I mean, she was not hysterical in, in that So would you like me to reread the whole sirah in in that light of the, in light of the male ego? <laughs> sure. I mean, keep in mind that these are all defensive from the point of view of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He's not. He's not. You know. He left Mecca to, to, to avoid all of this. But when it comes to statecraft, unfortunately law enforcement, borders, protection, war is is a part of the human condition. I mean, whether it's the male ego or... or, or I mean, I'm, there's a, prob- a lot of truth to Not probably, there is a lot of truth to that. But it's also a, re- a human reality. And Islam has... Always, always regulates and always deals with the reality of the human condition rather than posits some sort of uh, utopia Like other faith traditions Islam is very real in, in that regard and because of that, you know We have a system that, that talks about these things We even have a system that talks about slavery even though you know for us that's very grotesque and very difficult to understand So it's, it's really about dealing with the reality of the human condition Yeah. The Tabi'in are the people that saw the Sahaba but did not see the Prophet wasallam. And the Tab-Tabi'in are those that saw the Tabi'in but did not live to see the Sahaba. So if you if you if you grew up seeing the Sahaba even if it's one Sahabi you're a Tabi'i. So Imam Abu Hanifa was a tabi'i because he met seven of the Sahaba even though he was very young. But technically Imam Abu Hanifa is a, a tabi'i. If you grew up only seeing the Tabi'in and you didn't see any of the Sahaba, you're a Tab tabi'i. And of course if you saw the Prophet ﷺ once and you were Muslim and you died without Islam, you're a companion. So the Najashi of Abyssinia, he's a tabi'i because he never saw the Prophet ﷺ. He only saw the companions, and the last companion died around a hundred years after the Prophet's death. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He's the oldest companion, so it, the you know the the generations are. That gives you a sense of time. Somebody else have something? Yeah. Does the what like this like like the lesson that we're learning from the battle buffer is D O D you can understand. Yeah. That. Well, it's not a magic pill. You have to be a person of remembrance. So it's not—it's not what do you say. It's—it's it's how often do you say the the du'a. You know, Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahla. And ta al hazna ida shi'ta tasa. You know, nothing is easy except that you make easy. You make the difficult easy. It's a you know, very—it's a prophetic du'a. It's very powerful. It reminds you that anything you're about to do. Uh, if Allah has placed something in front of you that you have to do, no matter how difficult you think it is, but you believe deep down in your heart, Allah has only placed this in front of me and He says, Allah does not task a soul except with what it can bear, you will be able to deal with it. By the very fact that it has been placed in front of you. Now I solving breast cancer has not been placed in front, placed in front of me. So I don't have to worry about that. Solving, you know, HIV is not has not is not has not been placed in front of me. I don't have to worry about that. But everything that I wake up in and, and, and I start my day, the things that come my way, no matter how difficult it might, maybe tomorrow someone will put this, you know, solve breast cancer. If I believe deep deep down inside, Allahumma la sah illa ma ja'altahu sahla anta al hazna idha you'll be able to do it because Allah promises you that He does not give you except what you can handle. So if you have something, you can handle it. Your life is yours. It's been given to you. It's happening for you. So whatever you have, you can do it. And that's the dua reinforces that. So that's one dua that's very powerful. Allahumma a'inna ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husna ibadatak. Allah make us firm on your remembrance and your gratitude and worshiping you in the best of ways. Uh, making du'a for your parents اللهم ارحمهم Allah, You know, have mercy on them the way they had mercy on me when I was a child is also a very powerful du'a because the, the relationship between you and your parents is a sacred relationship regardless of what your parents have done even if your parents are not muslim even if your parents are rotten even if you hate your parents make du'a for your parents because this is the order of things that Allah has reminded us for so it puts nature back in its order Allah will give you blessings. So these type of things are what come to mind. But Imam al-Ghazali, he says that your heart is like a fortress, and the entrances, the entrances to your heart are your limbs. Your eyesight, what you hear, what you touch, what you smell, what you say, all of these impact your heart. So if you guard the entrances to your fortress, your fortress meaning your heart will be sound. So, it's important that we regulate what we consume. The information that we consume, the things that we hear, the things that we see, the things that we say, we have to remember that that's all going to impact us. That energy, to use the the woo woo terms, energy, that's what's going to impact our heart. Who you hang out with, you know, what you, like a year ago, there are just some people that I really can't stand. I just stopped following them on Facebook. And within a week, my life became very happy. And I realized that this is what Imam al-Ghazali is saying. Is that you're just letting all this garbage impact you. Why? I mean, life is short. I could wake up. I could die tomorrow. I don't want to die worried about what some, some idiot said on Facebook. Who cares? You know? So you have, to, you have to take control of, your, of yourself by, by realizing that I'm only going to let inside what I want to let inside. I'm gonna guard my fortress. I'm gonna protect my flanks. I'm only gonna let inside the type of energy that I want. That's gonna make me feel good. That's gonna help me. That's gonna make me happy. That's gonna make me feel fulfilled. I don't want to take that stuff inside. That's gonna ruin me and that vitriol and things like that. I know a lot of people who stop watching the news, or because of this reason. You know, just they just I don't need this in my life. So think about that. Your heart is your fortress and the entrances are your, your senses, you know. So don't let in that fortress, that protected area, except that which will benefit you. Yes. She speaks. MashaAllah. <laughs> Alaikum With, with what you can do So You can't uh, when, when, you, when you get on the plane They tell you if there's a oxygen if The pressure is down When the masks come What do you do? Put it on who first? Put it on yourself first And then help the person next to you Why? Because if you, if you, help the per- if you, if you don't put it on yourself And then you pass out Then you, you perish And the person next to you perish Even if the person next to you is your child like if there's my child, you know I have to help myself first so I can help them. So it's the same idea. Uh, if the person is drowning, you throw them the raft. You don't, you don't jump in because if you jump in and you're not trained, you both are going to drown. So you have to remember that those metaphors when you're trying to help somebody. You can't drown in that help. So are you able to help? It's all about, that. It's, that's the, the, the key to that answer, that question. Ability, are you able to or not? Uh, maybe your ability is to refer them to somebody else maybe your ability is to reach out to somebody that's stronger that's that's a, more capable than you in this area so, sometimes a lot of times people come to me and you know within like 10 15 minutes i'm like okay there's a there's a mental issue here i can't do that. i can't help i can i don't i don't know how to do that so i Find the, the people in the community that I know can help with that. And I say, can you please help see this person? Because I can't. That's my ability. Now I could sit there and talk and you know, say this verse 20 times and say this hadith 100. It's not going to work because there's something chemically wrong with that person. So that's, my, so that's not in my toolkit. My, it's not my ability. So it depends w- with what you have. But make sure that you're not dragged down. Because the Prophet Sahi he said, Ibda bin afsika thumma ta'ul Begin with yourself and then the person that is directly next to you. So if you're not ready, then that means you're not ready to help somebody else. If you're ready, okay, then you can help somebody. And a lot of times that comes with maturity. It comes with age. It comes with you know your professional area. Um, you know, it, it it evolves over time and and it and it fluctuates. You know, so it depends. Uh, you know, I remember when I was in high school, I I had a very close friend uh, who began to uh, experiment in hard drugs, in like cocaine and you know heroin and things like that. So I mean, I, I mean, I'm a high schooler. I had that was definitely out of my ability. So I went to the guidance counselor at school and I talked to them and anonymously and, you know, and they intervened you know i mean alhamdulillah at least that person now is still alive i mean allah alam what could have happened so i don't feel like that was not helping that's what i that's the best i could do with what i was given so you shouldn't feel bad if you you can't you know if that happens to you then the way you deal with it is by finding the right connecting it to the right person for example so that's a way that allah has allowed you to help Yeah. And when it comes to dean stuff as well You also need to know If you if you can help Great, if you can't find somebody that knows to help A lot of times people they want to You know, they start asking each other questions And it's like, you know the, the one-eyed person amongst the blind And both are wrong So that's also, you know Sometimes you just need to refer out to people that have that capability mm. I'm sorry the wali is the is the saint is the friend of allah in the saint of allah they have upon them is no fear or they have no concern so wilaya sainthood is somebody is achieved by somebody being consistent in their practice of islam that's that's really that's that's it the person that is consistent in their practice of islam this is the saint Tasawwuf is the spiritual dimension, the ihsan of Islam. But there are many people who claim tasawwuf who are, you know, crooked people. So it's not by names, it's about the state of your heart. Yeah. Don't worry about the names, just make sure your heart is good. Leave the names to me. I'll tell you, but just you, just focus on your heart and... To worship Allah is if you see Him. And if you don't see Him, know that He sees you. This is what the Prophet Sasam said is Ahsan. How do you do that? The servant keeps drawing closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala علي, With what Allah has prescribed on him or her. Prayer, fasting, zakah. And then they do the nawafil, they do the sunnahs until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves them. And then when Allah loves you, He becomes the hearing with which you hear, the sight with which you see, etc. That's wilayah. But how do you get there? By following what you're supposed to do in the first place. No, the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has hidden the wali amongst his creation. Like he has hidden Laylatul Qadr in the nights of Ramadan. Like he has hidden the, the hour of accepted du'a on the day of Friday. Etc, etc. We don't know who amongst us is the wali. There are some people we assume you know they are awali but the true state of a person with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only Allah knows that and only Allah will know that and we should not be concerned with it whatsoever we should be concerned about our own state inshallah may Allah make us firm inshallah on our practice anybody else yeah about a people almost some people that were being oppressed in a distant land and and there are so many there are so many groups that you can feel overwhelming with the amount of, of suffering that is, is happening in the world and I, I find myself torn between wanting to help those distant people and doing something in my local community so the person next to me and I wanted to know if you had any advice about how to handle I mean, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about because it can be overwhelming. Um, Don't forget that there is the power of du'a. So what we all owe everybody that, that shares our faith is to pray for everyone, especially those that are oppressed. And the Prophet ﷺ said, مَنْ بِأُمُورِ الْمُسْلِمِينَ فَلَيْسَ مِنْهُمْ Whoever is not concerned with the affairs of the Muslims is not amongst them. So it's, it's natural that we care and we, we're in pain and we're, we're hurting. So dua for people is a form of assistance. The other thing is, is again, as we were saying to the sisters, our ability. What can we do? Um, and do we have immediate concerns like the Prophet ﷺ, begin with yourself and then those nearest to you. So that the Prophet ﷺ set up for us like a system. So our obligation is to ourselves and our family and our immediate community first and then those outside if we can. So I would look at it in that way. Uh, You know, if it's people that are suffering and they need stuff for the winter like blankets and okay that's an easy you know we can we can sacrifice some winter clothes and we can so you've done that so it also depends what what's what the call to action is but I would think of that that sort of pyramid that decision pyramid first where am I where's my family more my family needs and those around me uh, my immediate community I mean, this community, alhamdulillah, you know, we're, we're, we're better off the, uh, the community is than a lot of others. So maybe people here can start thinking about other things. We also distribute zakat, So a lot of these people are, you know, are eligible for zakat. So maybe it's about asking the board, you know, have you given, can we give some of the zakat to, you know, Rohingya cause or to the Uyghurs and things like that. Also educating ourselves. Because a lot of these people come up to me after drum. I don't know who these people are. I mean, I know the, I know the situation of, of this people or that people, but the person that comes in the organization, I have no idea who they are. I have to vet them also. You have to, you know, we need to make sure that we know what's going on. That's also important. So I would think about it in those, in those terms. Yes, if you spread yourself too thin, you'll be useless. Which is why the Prophet left us with this clue. You know, begin with yourself and then those in your immediate sphere. So that's the order. Uh, if I'm okay, my family's okay, my community is okay, and I have extra, then I can give <clears throat> you know, to that community. A lot of these problems, though, they need to be solved by states as well. It needs government, you know, richer Muslim majority country governments that have resources and aid and things like that to, to you know, to help. Our dollars might not really do anything to, to solve that. So, but you're right. I mean, if you spread yourself to, if you have $10, you, know, you just give $1 to 10 causes or, or, you know, split it in half or $10 to another cause. I mean, you can end up diluting it to the point where you feel good about yourself but you really haven't had any impact and we want to be people of impact so our giving and our support should also be done intelligently and informed we need to be informed i think is it time i think for aisha yeah you're sick of me now alhamdulillah yes he said yes wallahu ta'ala a'lam